Okay, have your Bibles turn to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. This may be good news, this may be bad news, but your bulletin's wrong specifically when it says that we're going to cover verses 12 through 33. We're not going to get that far. Okay, so we're going to stop after verse 25. So that's where we're going to go. So the next week, um, we, will, we will pick up in 27 and then take 27 through verse 12 of chapter 12. And it goes with it, so, so we're, we're okay. Um, but but we're, we're not going as far as we thought. So turn your Bibles, Mark chapter 11. Now this is, this is a, an interesting passage, and so before you read it, I want to I lay out the, the logic, I think, the, the thinking behind this passage. Um, so, so let me, so if you look down, if you're there in, in Mark 11, look at the, the headings, um, the subheadings, or, or the headings there out to the side, maybe in your margin, maybe they're in the in actual text. But, but if you notice there, verses 12 through 14, there's a, a heading that says, Jesus curses the fig tree. Is that what yours says? Something about cursing of a fig tree? Okay, and then, then you see the next section, verses 15 through 19, has Jesus cleanses the temple. Is that, is that what you guys have? Okay, cleanses the temple. And then, verses 20 through 25, we have lessons from the fig tree, or lessons from the withered fig tree, or something about the fig tree again. Do you see that? Is that... Is that your Bibles have, have those general subjects there in the headings for those section of the verses? Is that right? So, so, so big picture what we have is we have a fig tree incident, a temple incident, and then a fig tree incident picked back up. Okay, so that's how it goes. Fig tree, temple, fig tree. And we're going to walk through those, but what, what I want to make clear at the outset is that what happens in the middle, in the temple, cannot be understood apart from what happens with the fig tree. Okay, so this is called a sandwiching, an interlocation. I don't think that's the right word. But Mark is sandwiching one event between one event. Okay, so he separates the fig tree and puts the temple in between. And so we we can't understand what happens with the fig tree without understanding what happens in the temple and vice versa. Okay, so so that's where we're going. Okay, so we're going to look at both of these in light of one another, and, and that's, that's important for us to understand what's going on in the passage. Well, let's, let's read the passage. I'm going to begin reading in verse 12 of Mark chapter 11. I'm going to read through verse 25, so if you're there, you can follow along as I read. I'm beginning Mark, Mark 11, verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, that's Jesus, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, and he was saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Verse 20, As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered 
what Jesus had said, and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Okay, so we have our, we have our sections, our three sections. We have the fig tree, the temple, and then the withered fig tree. That's, that's how I've broken the, the passage down in those three sections. Pretty, pretty simple there. So we have the fig tree, verses 12 through 14. Then in the middle, we have the, the temple, the, the cleansing or the, the judging of the temple in verses 15 through 19. And then lastly, the withered fig tree, the lessons from the, the fig tree there in verses 20 through 25. So let's, let's begin verse 12. This is where, where the passage picks up. If you remember last week, we had the, this triumphant entry into Jerusalem. So, so Jesus, this, this, this cries and palm branches, they go into Jerusalem and then he gets to Jerusalem and he goes into the temple. Remember last week? He went to the temple. It was already late. He kind of stuck his head and looked around and said, okay, goes back to Bethany. Well, here this picks up the very next day. And now they're going back to Jerusalem from Bethany. So every day this is the, the trip they're making from Bethany to Jerusalem. Like I said last week, they're probably staying with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. That's probably their, their place. And they're, they're making the trip into Jerusalem for the events of the day. So they're going back into Jerusalem, verse 12. No donkey this time, just Jesus and his disciples. And Mark says that Jesus is hungry and he sees a fig tree, and he wants to see if he can find anything on it. Specifically, he's looking for figs. He's looking for food. He wants some figs to eat. Okay, so that's what's, that's what's happened as they're walking along the road. Now, when he came to it, Mark says that he found nothing but leaves, to which Jesus then says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. You see that there in verse 14. That's the cursing. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. So, so it's a bit confusing as it is, right? So you probably have some questions but I left out one phrase. Look there at the end of verse 13, which, which makes this even more confusing. Look there in verse 13. So at the end of verse 13, so in seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. Then, then when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. Now here's, here's the editorial comment that Mark makes. For it was not the season for figs. Do you see that? that that's Mark commenting on the situation. So what happens is, is we have we have Jesus going and looking for some figs on a fig tree. It doesn't have any. Mark says, which, by the way, this makes perfect sense because it's not fig, tr- fig season. Then Jesus curses the tree. Right? Is that a bit confusing? Right? What, why is Jesus cursing a fig tree for not doing what a fig tree is not supposed to do? Do you see? It's not even time for figs, and Jesus is cursing it for not having figs. Right? A, a bit confusing. Was Jesus confused about the season? Did he not realize it? It's not fig time. It's not time for it to produce figs. Was Jesus angry? Maybe he's one of those grumpy, hungry people, right? You know some of them. Is he just grumpy saying, well, cursed. Be cursed. I'm hungry. And you couldn't produce. Right? So, so what's going on? Now, some people, they'll look at this instance, and they'll just say Jesus was out of control, that this was, this was evidence of his temper. One commentator says, it is a tale of a miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. So he says, this commentator says, well, Jesus is going gonna, is gonna to supernaturally curse a fig tree so it withers. Why can't he just use his power to make the, the fig tree produce figs? Right? What a waste of supernatural power. He just got mad 
and he just cursed it. And this, this guy continues, as it stands, talking about this story, it is simply incredible, which he means is unbelievable. Or more famously, a man named Bertrand Russell, in writing a, an, an essay or, or a, 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 yeah, an essay on why I'm not a Christian, right? That's the title of it. Okay, so maybe you can see where this is going. Bertrand Russell says, this is a very curious story. He says, I cannot feel, I cannot myself feel that either in the matter of wisdom or in the matter of virtue that Christ stands quite as high as some other people known to history. So he says, here is Jesus losing his temper. Says that Jesus actually isn't that different from everyone else. In fact, there are other people in history that are much more, te- much more wise or um, virtuous than Jesus here in this scene. So, so Bertrand Russell says, well, this is one of the reasons I'm not a Christian. Jesus, he's not really worth my following. So, so I don't want us to go that, that direction, but I, I do think it's fair for us to ask, well, what's going on? Like I mentioned a second ago, you can't understand the fig tree apart from the temple. Okay, so, so what isn't going on here, Jesus isn't surprised by the lack of figs. Okay, he's not confused about the season. He doesn't curse the fig tree because of lack of self-control or out of anger. Okay, that's not why he curses the fig tree. The reasoning behind the cursing of the fig tree has everything to do with the temple. Okay, with what Jesus knows is about to happen in the temple... What he's about to do, this fig tree, as they're making their way to the temple. Remember, he's at the temple last night. He goes back home. Now he's going, knowing what's going to happen in the temple, knowing what his plan is. He sees this fig tree, and here's an object lesson for the disciples. And so this fig tree, it's not the curse of the fig tree. It's not a fit of temper against an innocent tree, right? Some people say, what? Poor tree. What was he doing? It's not a fit of temper against an innocent tree, but it's an object lesson for the benefit of of the disciples. So what's the lesson? Well, look at verse 13. This is where I think, uh, I don't want to use language, the key to understanding this passage, but I think verse 13 does give us a hint as to what the lesson is. See that verse 13? Notice the contrast in verse 13. And so seeing the tree in a distance, Jesus sees one thing. From afar, the tree looks only, but as Jesus gets up to it, it's different. So, so look there, verse 13. It appears that the fig tree is producing fruit. When Jesus sees the tree from afar, he sees what appears to be a flourishing tree. There are leaves on it. It appears like it's a tree that's producing fruit. The point isn't whether or not it's time for, for figs. Right? Don't get hung up on that. That's not the point. The point is that from all appearances, this is a fruitful fig tree. Right? He sees leaves. It appears one way. But verse 13 continues, when he came to it, so from afar, it looks only. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. Again, the calendar doesn't matter here. It doesn't matter that it wasn't supposed to have figs. Okay? The point is that what once looked like a fruitful tree upon closer investigation wasn't. It didn't have figs. It was barren. And in that sense, it was useless. It was a useless fig tree. And so Jesus curses the tree that looks like it's bearing fruit, but in reality, it isn't. Jesus curses the tree that appears to be one way from afar, but in reality, it's not what it seems. Do you see? The the tree is guilty of false advertising, right? Its leaves mask its unfruitfulness or its fruitlessness. Okay, so that's the problem with the tree. That's why Jesus curses the tree, because of that, which leads us to what happens in the temple. Look there at verse 15. Verse 15, after this incident with the tree, we, we get to Jerusalem. They, they pick, the, the journey picks back up. Jesus, they enter Jerusalem just like last time. They get to Jerusalem, and then he goes straight to the temple. Verse 15, 
And he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So notice what's going on here. He gets to the temple and notice what, what's going on. There, there are sellers and there are buyers in the temple there in verse 15. Verse 15 also says there's, there's money changers. Verse 15 also tells us there, there are people selling pigeons, which would have been the sacrifice of, of poor. The poor would, would sacrifice pigeons. So they're selling the pigeons there, and then there are people carrying things through their temple. It's a, it's a bit of a shortcut. We don't have to walk around the whole temple complex. We can just cut right through here. So he doesn't, he doesn't let them do that. But the picture painted here by Mark is, is it's almost this, a, a chaotic scene. There's animals, and there's commotion, and there's commerce. It, it's like a, a, a wide-open marketplace there as he enters the temple. Now, one thing to make clear is that these actions in and of themselves are not the issue. Okay, the actions in and of themselves are not the issue. In fact, these things were normal and necessary even for temple worship. The buying and selling, the, the, the changing of money, the purchase of doves or, or goats or sheep, they're all part of the sacrificial system and the setup and function of the temple. These are things that had to happen. The, one commentator notes that the merchants performed a vital service for the temple, providing sacrificial animals and valid currency for pilgrims who had come a long way to Jerusalem to worship. And so the issue isn't the actions in and of themselves. The issue, the reason that Jesus responds the way that he does is because all of this has taken place within the temple. It's in temple grounds. And, and by, the, by, the, by the fact that these, this stuff is taking place in the temple, it is prohibiting the temple from functioning the way that it was intended to. Do you see? These things are taking place in the temple. It's not that they're taking place. They should take place, but not in the temple. And so Jesus won't have that. He won't put up with that. Now, in a little background, it's pretty commonly known, but, but I, I feel like it is worth saying. But the temple... Here's some homework. Go, if, go to Google. So Google is a website, if you don't know. Just go on your computer or your, or your tablet and just Google Herod's Jewish Temple. And then go to the images. And look, it's, it's a fascinating complex. And there's all these, these different renderings and artist depictions of, of this, this whole Jewish temple that Herod had built. Okay? It, it's a massive complex. It's ornate. It's very complicated. But... Basically, big picture, there, there's three sections. There's the, the sanctuary, or, or maybe you've heard of the Holy of Holies. That was only the priest could go in there, and only on very specific times. So that, was, that was a place that, that was not accessible by anyone but a very specific person at a very specific time. And then there was the Court of Israel. Um, other names, it goes by other names, but it, it's, it's where male Israelites could go, and they could worship. So that, again, was regulated. Only, only the males could go. The ladies had their, their own gathering place on the, the temple grounds, but, but there's the second court, the court of Israel. Then, then lastly, there's the court of the Gentiles, okay? And that's where all this is taking place. The court of the Gentiles was the furthest back, and no Gentile could go. There are these little small walls, sections of walls that, that marked off the court of the Gentiles, and no Gentile could go past that. Not even Herod himself, who built the temple, could pass that because of, because of the nature of, of Gentile and Jewish relationship, but, but the, the, the Gentiles couldn't go further. But they did have their own place. And so that's where all of this is, is taking place in the court of the Gentiles. And so as Jesus sees this taking place, he recognizes that, that the temple has abandoned its purpose. So a place where Gentiles are supposed to come worship, they're prohibited because 
They're buying and selling of things. And so notice the rationale behind Jesus' actions. He's overturning tables and he's driving people out. He's saying, don't cut through here. This isn't a shortcut. Notice verse 17. Is it not written? He's quoting from Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. So both of these are, are he's putting together. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? Which, by the way, it's not happening. Right? That's the issue. And then the quote that continues with Jeremiah 7. But you have made it a den of robbers. So instead of a holy place of worship for all nations, Jesus encounters a temple that, that, is, that is not functioning that way. It's not a house of prayer. It's a, it's a place of commerce. And so Jesus calls the temple a den of robbers. It, it's not, and notice also the point that he says it's a house of prayer for all nations. And so these Gentiles, yeah, come, come worship the God of Israel, but stay where you are. And in fact, actually, we're going to use your space because there's some other important things, actually more important than you. Worshiping is us selling and getting our money right and our sacrifice so then we can worship. Right? Think of the message that's sending to the Gentiles. Right? So there's segregation. Yeah, come worship our God, but stay where you are. Don't get close. Right? So, so there's issues going on. It's not a place of prayer for all the nations. The Gentiles have been pushed up, but also he calls it a den of robbers, which is quoted from Jeremiah 7. Now, I know for me, I always hear a den of robbers. You think, well, he's, he's talking about what's happening in, inside. There's shady deals. These, these temple leaders are taking advantage of the poor, taking advantage of people. But that's not what the context in Jeremiah says. So in Jeremiah, it's, it's verses 1 through 15 of Jeremiah 7. You can, go, you can go back and read it. But what's happening, what Jeremiah condemns in Jeremiah 7 is that there's these men of Judah who they're coming before the Lord in his house... And they're saying, we're, we're delivered. So they come to the temple and they celebrate. They say, we're delivered. The problem that Jeremiah says is that these words are deceptive. They're not true because these men have no reason to rejoice in being delivered. Jeremiah says they steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely. They make offerings to Baal and they go after other gods. And then, after doing all those things, then these men come and they stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered. Only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? So do you see the context? Jeremiah, the den of robbers language, isn't condemning the shady business deals that are taking place. It's not that the people are taking advantage of, though that, that appears to be true. The issue is that the temple has become a safe haven, a place for people to deceive themselves with, with lies, thinking, I'm okay. We're delivered because we're in the temple. We come to the temple and we worship, so we're good. It doesn't matter what we do out there. The temple had denigrated into a safe hiding place where people think that they find forgiveness and fellowship with God, no matter how they act on the outside. The sanctuary had become a sanctuary for bandits who thought that they were protected from God's judgment. And so that's the condemnation. It's a den of robbers. It's where all the, all the thieves, between their heists, between their, their stealing, they come here and they, they, just, they just hang out and think they're safe. It's a den for them, a place where they retreat. And Jesus says, you have no safety here. How is a temple functioning as providing safety for these people? It's a den of robbers. Again, contrary to its intended purpose. It's not functioning as it was created to. And so Jesus, in his actions, I know that the verses, the, the heading says, cleansing the temple, which, which in one sense is true, but, but he's not cleansing it in the hope that, okay, now, now let's start pure again. Let's, let's clean it so we can start over. no. Rather, I think Jesus is judging the temple. 
and that this marks, as we'll see in a couple weeks, this marks the beginning of the end for the temple and all that it represented. And so it's a doing away. Jesus doesn't mean to, to reestablish, okay, let's start over and have the, the temple functioning rightly. No, he's saying, actually, this whole thing, it's gone. I'm here, and the function of this temple is going to be totally transformed. And so here is judgment on the temple. So it's not so much a cleansing, but a pronounced judgment. They've missed the point. So just like the fig tree, the temple wasn't going to last. And so there's a connection between what's happening with the fig tree and the temple. So think about that relationship. The tree, as we mentioned, it gives the impression that it might have something to eat from afar, just as the temple would have given the impression that it's a place dedicated to the service of God. And from afar, wow, what a beautiful temple. Look, it's beautiful. Look at all those sacrifices and all those systems they have. Wow, look at the priests. Look how they're beautifully clothed. What, what a majestic place. But then when you get inside and you see what's actually going on, it's a dead, withering fig tree, useless, fruitless. And so Jesus is saying, what is happening to this fig tree is to point you to what's going to happen to this temple. It's gone, fruitless, useless. The temple was the place where God was uniquely present among his people. I mean, just think about the, the, life, of the, the life of the temple in the history of, of Israel. And even before the Israelites were actually formed, I mean, the temple had represented what had been the central meeting place between God and man throughout history. The temple, that's where God's glory, think about the, 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 the records of the, the building of the temple and the spirit filling the temple. And they're filled with awe because the presence of the Lord filled the temple. That, that's this temple. It had, it had had a, a, a long history. Before it was the temple, it was the tent of meeting and the tabernacle. Again, God is uniquely present there. Before that, the burning bush, Remember? God is meeting with man. Before that, go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 at the Garden of Eden. The first temple where God is dwelling with his people. And so God has all, had always met with his people in specific locations. That was the temple. And so when Jesus comes into the temple, when he sees it up close and personally, it ceased to be about what it was supposed to be about. The scary thing is there are still rituals and sacrifices and singing and all of that going on. That, that should frighten us. But it was empty. And so Jesus, in these acts, he condemns the temple and all of its shallow religious practices. So this activity, this, this turning over of tables, this, this creating a, a stir, doesn't go over too well in the temple with the leaders of the temple, the Jewish leaders. Look there at verse 18. Notice, you can imagine how it's received. The chief priests and the scribes, they heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. They see what he's doing. They say, we've got, to, we've got to destroy this man. We've got to destroy him because they feared him. All the crowd were astonished at his teaching. I mean, imagine if you're a Gentile there and you hear this man talk and say, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, we, we've, been, we've been abused. We've been taken advantage of. Yeah. And so the, the leadership, the Jewish leadership, the chief priests and the scribes, they, 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 they've got to eliminate this man. I mean, just let that settle in. Jesus shows up to the temple he addresses the issues with the temple and its practices, issues with purity and worship, things that ought to be the concern of those who are responsible for the temple, right? So Jesus should come, and they should say, oh, we were blind to this. Thank you for showing us. Let, let's reform temple practice. Right? That's not at all what they, how they respond. Though they should care, they're the ones who want to destroy Jesus. We don't want this. We're happy with our money, with our power, with our respect among these people. Don't come 
turning over tables in our temple. So they want to destroy him. Verse 19 records Jesus and his disciples, they go back to Bethany. So he accomplishes purpose. First day of Jerusalem is done, and they're headed back home to Bethany. Then that's where the withered tree picks up. Verse 20. Verse 20. So again, so they've gone back home to Bethany. Now in verse 20, they're making their way back to Jerusalem. So you see this back and forth between Jerusalem and Bethany. But as they go back, just like they did before, lo and behold, they see the fig tree that they'd just seen the day before, that they had heard Jesus say, may no one ever eat from you again. But this time, as they pass the fig tree, something's different. Right? It's not the same fig tree. There's no, there's no confusing the nature of this fig tree. It had withered all the way to its roots. So Peter, remembering that Jesus had cursed the tree, reminds Jesus that the curse came to pass. Maybe Peter says it lightheartedly. Oh, look at that. Cool trick, Jesus. Right? And look, it happened. I heard you say it, and, and now, now look, it did happen. Right? Whatever the, the reasoning behind Peter's comment, he, he, he says it. And Mark tells us that they heard what he said before, and they remember it, which shows us that what happened in between is important. Okay? Mark is, is helping us connect this. And so Peter makes that comment. Then look at verse 22. Jesus, after this comment about the fig tree, he doesn't seem to care about the fig tree, does he? He doesn't say anything about the fig tree. Instead, he begins teaching focused on faith and prayer. So look there at verse 22 through 25, this, this, this section of teaching. Jesus says, have faith in God. Surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and be thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received, and, you, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, if you have any, when you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. And so they seem unrelated, don't they? So we read those, we, we read what Jesus says, and we probably think, great, good teaching, they, th- that's all good stuff. But what in the world does that have to do with the fig tree? There's not even a break in the story. They, they see the fig tree. Peter comments about the fig tree. And then Jesus says, immediately goes into this teaching. Well, is it disconnected? What, what's the point? Now remember, like I, like I said earlier, the fig tree and the temple, they can't be understood apart from each other. Neither should these teachings be understood apart from what he did the previous day in the temple. So the temple is still helping us think rightly about even this teaching. Context is key when, you, when you're studying scriptures. So how many of you have heard about, I, I've got faith to move mountains? Right? I'm sure there's a number of songs about it, right? But, but that's not the point here. The context this is a very specific mountain that's to be moved. So look there in verse 22 when, when Jesus says, This mountain, it's not just any mountains you want to move, just have faith and pray and they're going to be moved. He says, This mountain, verse 22, if you have faith to move this mountain, you can say to this mountain and say, so it's a specific mountain. Now, where are they? They're on their way to the temple. And the temple is, is up on, on a mountain. So it's, it's the temple mountain. And so Jesus, I think when Jesus is saying this, he's saying anyone who says to this very mountain that the temple itself is resting on, be taken up and thrown into the sea. If that person doesn't doubt but believes, it will be done for him. And this example clearly emphasizes the necessity of faith, but it also I think, and this is how I think it connects, it emphasizes the insignificance of the temple. When Jesus says this mountain, he's referring to the mountain that the temple was on top of. And so he's, Jesus, I think, is saying that this temple can be destroyed. It can be thrown into the sea. Right? The sea is where things go to be destroyed. Like, remember the, the demons that had possessed the pig? That's where they go to be destroyed. So he's saying this temple could be thrown into the sea, and yet faith and prayer 
your relationship with God can still be present. Right? So the temple could be thrown in the sea, but you still have access to God through, through faith and through prayer. The intimate relationship between God and his people is not dependent upon the temple. That's, I think, one of the points here. The temple is going away, and Jesus doesn't want his disciples to be confused and say, how are we going to worship God if we don't have a temple? He's saying it's not about the temple. It's about faith. It's about this, this relationship. It's about prayer. As you know, the temple would be destroyed not long after this, several, several 50 years after this, depending on when you, you date this, 50, 60 years. And I think Jesus' point is that the temple, it's fading out in terms of its significance. It's not going to function the way it had always functioned. And related to this, one commentator states that most Jews regarded the temple as the place where prayer was particularly effective. It's like, if I'm in the temple praying, then I'm going to have my prayers answered. This was common among the Jews, common belief. And so Jesus, on the other hand, says it's not about the temple. The effectiveness of their prayers, Jesus is telling the disciples, has nothing to do with the temple or its sacrifices. Right? The temple, I think, I think that's his point, is the insignificance of the temple or the fading function of the temple. And then Jesus concludes his teaching by emphasizing that prayer to God and forgiveness from God are not tied up in the temple and the sacrifices. Rather, peace with God is attained by divine forgiveness. And that can be experienced anywhere. Notice, just like human forgiveness, it's not dependent upon a visit to the temple. So if you're praying and, and someone, you need to forgive someone, do it. You don't go to the temple and then exercise this exchange and say, okay, now I'm forgiven, so now I can forgive. No, he says it happens anywhere. It's not about the practices, the sacrifices of the temple. As we'll see in, in several weeks, Jesus is going to say the temple is not even this place, but he's going to redefine the temple and say, I'm the temple. It's about me, and it's going to be destroyed, but it's going to be risen again, and it's going to totally transform. I mean, think about it. Jesus identifies himself as the temple. He's, he's killed. He's buried. He's raised, resurrected. If he's the temple, this big building really changes how, it, how I think about it. It changes how it functions. It's not about that. It's about Jesus. And so the main point of these verses, then, they're not disconnected, but rather directly connected to what's just happened in the temple. The temple, with its priesthood, sacrifices, and taxes, are no longer the place of God's presence. Right? right? There's this time where it's kind of it's shifting, where there's this, this not a clear line, but one doesn't meet God at the temple anymore. With the coming of Jesus, that changes. And so Jesus is in the process of totally transforming how God's people think about the temple. Let me close with, with three. I have three points of application. Three points. And then we will come to the table. It'll be a, it will transition to that. So first, first application, an encouragement to prayer. Okay, so as we just, just mentioned, those teachings of Jesus. I don't think that's the main application of the passage, but there's certainly some encouragement for the Christian in Jesus' final teaching in that last section. Right, we obviously want to guard against this name it and claim it prosperity teaching. So we want to say, well, ask whatever you want, and, and God promises you'll get it. We have, to, we have to guard against that. Right? There are lots of there are boundaries and qualifiers for that in other places in Scripture. So we don't just say, well, I, I want a new jet, and I'm praying with faith to get it. So when I don't get it, it must be my faith's problem. No, there, there are bigger issues than that. Okay, so, so I just want you to know that, that they're, beware of that. But, so it's not blanket approval to ask for whatever you want, assuming that as long as you have faith, you'll get it. But for the Christian, here's the encouragement in this. The one who desires to live a life in accordance with God's word, the one who seeks to, to live an effective life to make an impact, for the Christian, this is an incredibly encouraging teaching on prayer. And he says, ask, believing that what you say will come to pass. 
ask and believe that it will be done and it will be yours. I mean, I mean that's pretty encouraging, right? Ask. I mean, one question for you to consider is what stands in the way of you living a fruitful Christian life? What are things that hinder you? What are, what are things that, that obstruct your growth and godliness? Fatigue, apathy, job, anger issues, busyness, the list could go on. And why, why are those things obstructions to you? This passage says, ask God to help you. Ask God to change you. Ask God to remove what's hindering you. Ask knowing that God wants you to grow in godliness. He wants you to. Ask in faith that he will do it, that he's concerned for your good and your growth. And so identify, what, what's, what's, what's hindering me from my, my Christian growth? And then go to the Lord in prayer and say, Lord, help me with this. Remove this mountain. You can even use that language. But ask God in prayer, and, and the promise is that it will be given to you. Trusting that God's for you and has a plan for you. And so as Christians, we have great encouragement to pray here and my question is, why don't we pray? So there's encouragement to pray here, but second application, the danger of fruitlessness. The danger of fruitlessness. We ought to see in Jesus' condemnation of the people a warning, a danger. A danger, I mean, think about the temple. It had all the appearances of a fruitful place of worship, all the sacrifices, festivities, prayers, yet upon closer investigation, it was nothing but a facade. It was, in reality, not what it appeared. It was fruitless. It wasn't accomplishing God's purpose for it. And the danger that we ought to recognize is the potential for us to fall into the same type of fruitlessness, both personally and corporately. Personally and corporately. I mean, we dare not assume that we're above such temptation. We don't read this about the temple and say, how could they let that happen? No, we ought to take guard. How easy it is for someone to just go through the Christian motions How easy it is for someone to have the appearance of godliness when in reality there's nothing of substance underneath. It's easy for us to appear to be godly, good, upright Christian folk. That's easy. But is it real or not? Right? Just because you appear doesn't mean you're fruitful as the temple and the fig tree showed. You must guard against simply going through the motions, especially as was the case in our passage when our going through the motions are the means of our security and peace with God. Right? We can't just, can't just live a fruitless life and come here and think, okay, I'm good. I'm good. Just appease my guilt, appease my worry. I came to church. I went to Sunday school. I gave a tithe. I'm good. How dangerous it is for someone to assume that coming to church, that joining a Sunday school class, that giving money, that doing any of the things are ways to achieve peace with God. That they are no, those are no way to peace with God. In fact, that's the epitome of a fruitless life. So don't go through the motions Don't be fruitless. God forbid that our church would ever be a place where people come to hear the words peace, peace, when in fact there's no reason to claim peace. Friends, peace, joy, acceptance before God, this comes through faith in Christ and faith in Christ alone. Not by what you do. You're not right with God by showing up here. Maybe you've heard going to a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage makes you a car. Right? If you think I'm there, or you're a Christian, yeah, I'm a Christian, well, well, how do you know? I go to church every week. You're deceived if that's what you think makes a Christian. A Christian is someone who trusts in Christ alone for salvation and forgiveness of sins. And that's where we find peace, not by coming to this place. But we also ought to consider the danger of fruitlessness corporately. As a church, we ought to be asking ourselves, how are we tempted to be like the temple? How are we tempted to fall into the fruitlessness 
of the temple. If, if you drive around through, through the area, through Hampton Roads, if you drive down Mercury, if you drive down Fox Hill Road or, or East Little Back River, you'll see there's no lack of dying, fruitless churches around. Right? They're, they're all over. They're dying. And we ought to plead with God as Fox Hill Road Baptist Church to prevent that from happening here. May we never die. May we, may we never have to put up a for, for sale sign on our property. There are lots of reasons that churches die, but the one thing that I want to emphasize is that the fact when churches lose the gospel, when they lose their focus on Jesus Christ, their clock is ticking. When Christ isn't in it, when Christ isn't the focus of a corporate church's function in life, its life is slowly fading away. It may, may last for a while, maybe it have service, activities for a while, but life is being sucked out of that when Jesus is not its focus. And so corporately, may we never lose Christ. I mean, you, you younger than me, if you're here decades after us, when we're all gone, may God use you to maintain the purity of this church, to, to, to stand with the gospel here at 335 Fox Hill Road. That's our prayer. If you're a longtime member, you should be praying for our future. Not that we grow, not that we have these programs, not that we build a new building, but that we maintain a faithfulness to the gospel. Because as long as that's there, God's going to grow how he wants. And so pray for our church that we may not fall into that. The duty of fruitfulness was a third application. All I'll say here is to reiterate what I just said, that fruitlessness is all about not abiding in Christ. Fruitfulness is about abiding in Christ. Christ must be the center. You can write down John 15 and study that later. Abiding in Christ is, is how we bear fruit. And then lastly, third applica- or fourth application, the temporary role of the temple. I think this is one of the main points of this passage, the temporary role or function of the temple. We'll say about this more in the coming weeks, but here we're beginning to see that the temple's fading out. Or better yet, the, the temple and its function is being transformed. Jesus comes and he redefines the meeting place between God and man. And by so doing, he also redefines how we understand the building, the temple. And so we'll say more about that in coming weeks. But, but the one, Jesus comes as the place. And, and that's a fascinating study to talk about Jesus as, as tabernacling among us. That's the actual language of John 1. So he's the now the meeting place. And when he shows up, other meeting places, they, they fade in the background. But as Jesus comes... Remember as he dies on the cross, and remember what happens in the temple, that real significant event, right? What happens to that temple curtain? It, it rips right in part, right? So that, that, that's a declaration of what Jesus does and, and how the temple is affected. But Jesus comes as the place. And when that curtain tears, it's not primarily to make the point that now anyone can come in, right? We've heard that before, that the, the wall's gone. Now anyone can enter the Holy of Holies. That's not the primary point, I don't think, of the temple curtain being torn, but rather the point is now God is going to move out, right? It's not because it was just about anyone can come to the temple and to the Holy of Holies now. They'd say, just come to Jerusalem. We got free access for everyone. No, the book of Acts records now the gospel, the presence of God is moving out from Jerusalem. So the tearing of the temple is not so much about us going in, but God now moving out. It's not about place anymore. He's spreading his gospel, his reign, his kingdom, by his spirit, through his gospel, to the ends of the earth. He's not limited by the earthly location. He's on the move, and he has been ever since. He still is today. Well, let, let's pray.